You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See? I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor, sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us till we have drawn them away from the city. But they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. As soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I've commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of the ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning, mustered the people, and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, He and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. 
When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree. And they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I want to pray for us before I preach. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Pray that uh, you would come and initiate a work of transformation inside of our hearts this morning and that would last. Pray, Father, that you would come and engage our hearts and help us to prepare for what you are about to do inside of each of us. I know that each of us in this room is in different places this morning, and yet you, Father, are sovereign and good and mighty and victorious. And so, Father, we pray that you would come by the power of your Spirit, the preaching of your Word, and that you would continue a work of transformation in us, that you would accomplish what you wish to accomplish in us. And we ask that in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so Joshua chapter 8 uh, is a, uh, it's really a great comeback story if, you, uh, if you've been tracking along, right? It's a great comeback story. Now, I would venture to say that most of us probably enjoy a good comeback story. I know that I do, okay? Uh, the pain and the, and the agony um, of defeat is not something that I think many of us enjoy, right? A defeat is something that can be demoralizing. Um, it, it's defeating um, in nature. It leaves you feeling numb, leaves you feeling broken, right? It leaves you feeling a bit lost when you face defeat. Has anybody been following the Husker football season this year? Then you know exactly what I'm talking about if you have been. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, who in their right mind uh, wants to live in defeat? Anybody want to live in defeat? I don't think so. Now, if you take a look back at Joshua chapter 7, um, which is what Pastor Nelson preached last week, if you take a look back at Joshua chapter 7, um, looking at that chapter can be a lot like looking inside of uh, our backpack of defeat. I believe every one of us carries a little bit of a baggage around with us full of defeat and disappointments um, that we're just trying to manage. And so if you're, if, if you're tracking back and you're looking at Joshua chapter 7, <clears throat> very similar to looking inside of that backpack and pulling out some of those areas of disappointment and areas of defeat that we've all um, tried to manage. 
you think back with me, um, Israel in chapter 7 tried to defeat her enemies, um, but instead of defeating her enemies, uh, she was handed a major loss because of some secret sin that hadn't been dealt with properly, right? Uh, So what God does in chapter 7 is he he takes the initiative, um, and he, he jumps into the story, and he deals with the sin, and he also deals with the sinner in a very horrific way, if you remember the story rightly. Uh, There's a dude named Achan, right? Achan, along with his entire family, everything that he owned was destroyed. They got stoned, not in the conventional sense, but stoned with rocks. Make sure we clarify. Got stoned with rocks, and then everything, all of them burned with fire would be the traditional um, interpretation of what happened in chapter 7. All of this happened because Achan and his family, by way of implication, if you begin to understand the difference between just simple individualistic sin, sin that I did, um, if, if, if you look at it that way, which is more of a Western mindset, an Eastern mindset where the Bible was written at and, and originates at is more of a communal mindset that when one person sins, the entire nation becomes... And the entire family becomes implicated in that. Okay? So the sin leavens the loaf, uh, we see later in the Bible as well. So by way of implication, Achan and then his entire family um, get destroyed because they had secretly held on to things that were supposed to be devoted for destruction. The robe, you might remember. Um, They'd also held on to things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord or given to the Lord, such as the precious metals. Um, so simply put, Achan withholds from the Lord what rightly belongs to the Lord, and then he also doesn't destroy what God calls him to destroy. So he literally steals from the Lord uh, like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, right? Joe, I think you mentioned that, did a really good job with it. So he steals from the Lord. But then he also refused to destroy what God commanded him to destroy. Very similar to the Israelites refusing to put away their sinful um, acts of social injustice throughout the historic books and the prophetic books of the Old Testament and all of their idolatry. So this is what we see happening in chapter 7. Consequences for that sin was... Was, was heavy. Uh, the, re- the reality is that Achan paid the justified price for his crime. He, he knew the consequences of his actions. And yet, Achan took a chance that God wouldn't catch him. And in that risk, it costs Achan and his family dearly, not to mention the cost to the community of Israel around them as they Uh, taste defeat at the hands of their enemies and Ai, right? Victory could have been had, but what happened? Victory, as Joe said, was snatched up in the jaws of defeat. But the end of chapter 7 is not the end of the story. God is much bigger than your defeat, right? One of the clearest statements that came through to me from Joe's sermon last week. Oftentimes we want to minimize our God into the size of our defeat rather than recognizing that our God is mighty. 
We're not, we're not defined by our defeats if we've trusted in Christ. We're defined by a miracle-working, powerful, star-breathing God, right? This is the God that we serve. If you serve Him, then your defeat doesn't define you. You're defined by the God who calls you son or daughter. So the end of the story is not in chapter 7. Chapter 8 is a continuation of that story. Most commentators, most scholars deal with both chapter 7 and chapter 8 in the same um, sermon, typically. Um, But there's way too much there for either of us to have dealt with in one sermon. As we look at chapter 8, what you see is you see God initiating the victory, and then you see Israel preparing for battle, and then you see Israel engaging the fight, and then you see the mission getting accomplished at the end. And and in in that outline that I just gave us uh, are basically four words that I want you to remember. You can see principles on the screen in front of you, and that's all I have for you this morning is what's on the screen in front of you. But there are four specific words in each of those principles that I want you to think about as you hear this sermon. The first one is the word initiate. The second word is the word prepare. Third word is the word engage. And the last one is mission. Initiate, prepare, engage, mission. The reality is that God is the one who takes the initiative to get after us in various different ways. The other reality is that based upon that truth, we must be preparing for the battle. Let me just ask you, what does it look like for you to respond to God's initiation towards you, His coming towards you, His leaving heaven and coming towards you and, and pursuing you? What does it look like for you to respond to that by preparing for the battle of this life? And if you're prepared, then what does it look like for you to actually engage the fight and not disengage? And then finally, based on those first three, what does it look like for you to be engaged in the right mission, the right fight, right? Because the mission's been accomplished at the cross of Christ, and then we've been given a piece and a part of that as a church family, as believers, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's summary of where we're going to head. Let's look at number one. God initiates the victory, verses one through two. As I said, in chapter seven, God um, takes the initiative in chapter seven and chapter eight. But in chapter seven, God takes the initiative to confront and to remove both the sin and the sinner from the community, right? That's kind of the story that you see taking place there. Uh, My guess is that chapter 7 is a super horrifying experience for many of the the people in the nation of Israel. You you think about this. What what do you feel like when someone that you've loved and trusted and invested your life into relationally, what do you feel like when that person commits a crime of treason against you? When that person commits a crime, a crime of treason against you, and then they get find out, found out that the truth comes out, and then they have to face the consequences. The consequences are horrifying. But flip the question around, if you're brave enough to do so, what, what do you feel like when you realize you've committed a crime of treason against the Lord or against someone who has loved you dearly? 
What do you feel like? See, in these moments when, when a crime of treason happens, you feel hurt, angry, confused, fearful, defeated, right? Here's the beautiful thing about this transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8. In this transition, the, the same God who takes the initiative to not only confront, but to also remove both the sin and the sinner. This is the same God from chapter 7 that's acting and initiating in chapter 8. And He's taking the initiative to bring victory out of defeat. So God is the God who, who takes sin seriously, but He's also the God who initiates or takes action to eradicate the defeat of sin and to give us the victory. This is what God does. This is the God that we get to proclaim as a church family. That God gives us the victory over Satan's sin. We don't have to walk in defeat. You don't have to live in chapter 7. You can live in chapter 8 with the recognition that chapter 7 is where we came from. God doesn't just hang around in the back room in silent mode after Israel's defeat. Now, now, the, now the reality is that uh, sometimes I think it's important for us <coughs> to feel the absence of God. Anybody ever experienced that? Feel the absence of God? Not sure He's speaking to you. You don't, you don't feel Him there. Nothing special seems to be happening in your relationship with Him. I think sometimes it is very important for us to feel that absence from God, especially when we've continuously and persistently chosen something other than God to be the fulfillment of our satisfaction. In those moments, God's not just being the passive daddy in the back room ignoring his kids. God's being the active God who is actively and, and intentionally initiating distance so that you and I can learn to hunger for Him more rather than hunger for the things which are contrary to what we need, which is Him. I think even in those moments, he's not, just being, he's not being passive at all. He's actually being very intentional in, in His love of us by being distant. But in this passage, hey, take us all the way around there just to come back and say, in this moment, God is not initiating that way. God is initiating in a different way. Just as He comes and confronts and punishes sin and sinner in Israel's midst. Um, he also comes in this case to strengthen and to encourage and to spur Israel on towards the victory. He takes the initiative. He comes to Joshua. He instructs him, don't live in fear. Don't live in doubt because of this defeat, because of this discipline that you've experienced. Tells him to get up. Get up. Grab all the fighting men. Lead them into battle against their enemies because God Himself 
is the one that's going to give the victory just as he had at Jericho. He's reminding Joshua, reminding Israel, look what I did, I'm going to do it again. Now the only major difference uh, here as God initiates this is that uh, as opposed to Jericho, um, in this instance, Israel is going to be allowed to take some of the spoils of war. The thing for us to remember from this first section here as we look at how God initiates the victory is that when He initiates the victory for us, we need to prepare for the battle. When He initiates the victory for us, we need to prepare for the battle. There's no sitting back on the sidelines at this point. It is a message of get up off the ground and get moving forward. Which leads us into number two, we need to prepare for the battle, right? Verses 3-13, through this is what we see Israel doing. They are preparing for what lies ahead. As soon as God finishes speaking, Joshua grabs up all the fighting men of Israel, and they begin to make preparations for the battle, right? says that he grabs 30,000 mighty brave men, he grabs the elders of Israel, he grabs the people of Israel, and then he orchestrates this really masterful strategic attack plan on the city of Ai that basically centers on the appearance of defeat with an unseen ambush in the back, right? That's the preparations they begin to make. Joshua's plan is simply to have some of his fighting men along with the elders of Israel, along with the people of Israel, are going to have them out in front of the city to the north, and they're going to act like they're going to attack the city. Um, that whole move on Joshua's end is going to, going to bring the king of the city up to the front gate with all the people, and they're going to be like, what? Those people that we just beat yesterday, they're back for more? I mean, this is like Wisconsin every year. Really? Nebraska's back for more? Every year for like eight years. Good Lord. So, the king, all the people of AI, they're going to look at it and be like, what the heck? We're going to go give these guys a beat down. Um, Joshua and all his people, all his horde, they're going to kind of flee, draw them out of the city, leave the city empty. Um, which at that point, then once the city's empty, then the men that are hiding out behind the city, <coughs> those guys are going to jump up out of their hiding spot, out of the valley, and come out of hiding, they're going to sneak into the city, they're going to light it on fire, and we're going to see more of that in the very next section as they engage the battle. But that's going to become the signal then for Joshua and his group of folks who are fleeing in front to turn around and begin fighting the enemy who's chasing them down, which is really cool because it kind of sandwiches them in between the front guard and the rear guard, and then they're like surrounded. All the bad guys are dying in crossfire and stuff. I mean, it's really cool, I think. If you love war movies, it uh, kind of gets me going. Um, so that's basically the preparations for the battle. I do think, as we're looking at this section, though, it's really important for us to note verses 7 through 8. So it's just if you got your Bibles open in front of you or if you're using it on your phone or a tablet or something, you know, highlight it, <coughs> circle it, put smiley faces and hearts, whatever it is that you do. Um, to remind yourself of verses 7 through 8. 7, for eight, uh, seven through 8 of this section is, uh, I think, really key. Verses 7 through 8 say this. You shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. 
And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So, um, so I want you to think about this with me for a minute. These verses, I think, are, are the key to experiencing the comeback victory that we witness in this story. I think these two verses are the key to experiencing this comeback victory. Here's what I mean. If you look at the promise of verse 7, just think of it like it's in the center right here above the pulpit where my hand is going up and down. The promise of verse 7 is right there in the center, and it says this. It says, For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. That's the promise. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. Now that promise is the reason for the preceding command. There's a command that comes before the promise that's in the center. That command is right over here. Earlier in verse 7, right? And that command says what? It says, you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. So if you're tracking with me, you've got a promise. going to give it to you. And you've got a command that comes before that. It says, this is what you need to go do. Then you've got the promise. Then after the promise, you have another command, right? Another command for obedience in verse 8 says what? It says, you shall do, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. I'm sorry, but I don't know what that is, but it sounds like, like Twilight Zone stuff going on. Who's got the Twilight Zone ringtone going off? Wow, that's creepy. Woo. Like the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. Right, don't, don't miss this. You've got the promise. The command that comes before it, and then you got this command that comes after it in verse 8 says, You shall do according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so if you're having trouble following, here's what it would sound like. It would sound like God saying, Hey, go do this thing. I'm going to give you the victory, and because I'm going to give you the victory, I want you to go do this thing. What's the point? The point is this the central thread of the promise of victory is what holds the commands of God together. The, the, the commands to obedience to the Word of God are absolutely useless and worthless, worthless if they're divorced from the promises of God's Word. Likewise, the promises of God's Word are absolutely useless and worthless if they're divorced from the commands of obedience in God's Word. Here's the way I say it. I say obedience without promise. What does that lead to? Obedience without promise leads to legalism. You're just going to be obedient because obedience is right. Obedience without promise leads to legalism. Promise without obedience is what leads to license. Right? But obedience that is motivated by the promise of victory, <coughs> that results in holiness and faithfulness. Obedience that is motivated by the promise of victory. That results in faithfulness and holiness. Anybody here struggle with faithfulness or holiness? Anybody want to admit to that along with me? I'm with you. I know there's probably a few of you here that are close to perfect, but... Obedience that is motivated by the promise of victory results in holiness and faithfulness. See, God is faithful, isn't he? 
God is faithful to give us... I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if God just gave us all these promises? I kind of feel good, but like, how would you ever live out the victory of that? Like, God has been so faithful to give us both the promises and the commands in his word. Both. What a complete package we have as God reveals his nature towards us. He's faithful to give us both the promise of victory, and then he's also faithful to give us the instructions for walking in that victory. So you have the promise of victory, and you have the instructions for walking out that victory. You don't have to live in chapter 7. Right? The victory that was snatched up in the jaws of defeat now gets flipped upside down. Defeat gets snatched up in the jaws of victory as we look at this passage. Our responsibility here um, is to walk by faith, to prepare for the battle so that we can engage the fight, right? No such thing as a Christian who just sits in the pews. No such thing. If that's, if that's your mode of operating, you might want to question where your loyalties lie. Because the only kind of true Christian is one who is engaged in the fight. Now, there's probably going to be various levels of fight, corporately and personally. It can't be tapped out. You got to get up off the mat. Christ has won the victory for us. So, number three, got to engage the fight. Got to engage the fight. Verses 14 through 23. If you look at verse 14, verse 14 tells us that as soon as the king of Ai saw that Israel was prepared for the fight, what does he do? Well, he and all of his people come out of the city to meet Israel for battle, right? Dude's got no clue that some of Israel's army is hiding out behind the city. No clue. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Satan. On the day when Christ was crucified at the cross of Calvary, Pretty sure the dude had no clue that what looked like defeat was actually going to be the victory. He had no clue. No clue that some Israel's army was hiding out behind the city. So when Joshua and his big massive crowd of people out in front, uh, they begin to run like they're getting beaten, he chases after them, which then leaves the city empty and open for attack, right? As soon as the city's open and empty, the Lord instructs Joshua to lift up the javelin that's in his hand as a cue to carry out the destruction that had been commanded by the Lord. So this episode, as you're looking at it, is very similar to Moses lifting up his staff that's in his hand at the command of the Lord for the parting of the Red Sea. Now remember, Israelites are running. Egypt is right behind them. They get stopped up by the sea. All of Israel's like, what the heck, Moses? Like, what are we doing here? Like, these guys are going to get us. And God tells them, like, lift up that staff miraculously releases them. They walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side. He's got his staff. He lets it down. The Egyptians are in the water. They get killed, destroyed, utterly, completely. That's what God does. Not only does he redeem us and bring us out of the defeat, but then he also turns that defeat right back around on top of the heads of those that are trying to defeat us. This is the beautiful picture of the gospel all the way through. So good. It's transforming, isn't it? 
So you see the same kind of thing happening here. Israel engages the battle, and they just begin to destroy, utterly destroy Ai, and all of its inhabitants, all the way up to the point to where the king of Ai is brought in front of Joshua. I just, I imagine that moment, you know, being like that movie Gladiator, right? Where the good guy meets the bad guy in the end. Final showdown type of feeling. Either that or it's a lot like some of those old westerns that I like to watch. Those are good too. But either way, this is a moment. It's a historical account of Israel's victory over AI. And it's illustrative for us. It's illustrative for us of what, what complete trust and obedience to the promises and the commands of the Word of God looks like. So the, the, the fight here in this story, it's, it's strategic, it's active, and it's violent. I'll say it again, it's strategic, it's active, and it's violent. There's nothing easy about the Christian life. It was never meant to be easy. I think it'd be easier to not be a Christian in many ways, at least, at least in this life. The fight has to be engaged. See, our fight against Satan's sin and worldly temptation has got to be engaged. The question is, how are you engaging that fight? How are you engaged in that fight? Got to be strategic, got to be active, got to be violent if we're going to engage the fight. I mean, you think about passages in, in the Gospels that talk about waging war against sin and in the epistles, right? Book of Romans. <clears throat> you listen to John Owen, one of the Puritans on this issue, and he says, hey, you better be killing sinners, it's going to be killing you. I can't tell you as a, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a follower of Christ now for 19 years, how many people I've seen that have just walked right through, come in one door of the church and walk right out the other in terms of not just building, but in terms of community, who begin really gung-ho, like, yeah, I'm getting after this, but then they don't want to fight against their sin, and eventually that sin takes them out. And of course, they always blame it on everybody else because that's what we do in America and everywhere else. We blame our sin on everybody else because that's what's been happening since the Garden of Eden. When Eve was like, well, the snake. And Adam was like, well, Eve gave me that. Ownership, accountability is tough for us, isn't it? You need to be active and violent. And the scriptures tell us that if you've got sin that's running rampant in your life, your right eye is offending you, making you look at things, you ought to gouge it out. Better to go to heaven maimed than to go to hell whole. Your right hand's offending you. You ought to chop that thing off, not literally. Figuratively speaking, though, you ought to take that kind of a strategic and active and violent approach to sin. God seems to have done this at the cross on our behalf. Therefore, we ought to as well. Got to take a strategic, active, violent approach if we're going to engage the fight and accomplish the mission that God has given us. Which leads me to number four. That the mission has been accomplished. Verses 24 through 29. 
the mission has been accomplished. These final verses tell us that the destruction of Ai and all of its inhabitants was complete. There wasn't a single person left alive in Ai. There was a, this was a mission of total annihilation, right? Uh, the king of the city wasn't even allowed to live. Joshua hangs the dude on a tree till evening, then throws his dead body in the entrance of the city under a massive pile of rocks after massacring every human being in the city. Um, Israel's mission was accomplished. Uh, it was finished. Write those three words down. Was finished. It is finished. Now, the same question, here's the thing. Uh, the same question that plagued us in chapter 6 also plagues us in chapter 8. Um, I know Nelson and I were having a good conversation about um, some of these questions, and I think both of us agree that oftentimes the uh, the indictment on the church is that we either tap out and don't talk about things that need to be talked about, which leads to all sorts of all-out rampant rebellion, right? For years, the church has tapped out of some of the culture wars that we ought to be engaged in rightly. And then on the other side, we start, start fighting it the wrong way, too. We start fighting the wrong fight. Then we're like overly aggressive on stupid things like, I just want to win the fight and prove that I'm right. And aha, got you. Right? Um, and so I would be remiss if I were to pass over this point and not jump into the question yet again. Why would a good and loving God completely annihilate every human being in Jericho and Ai? Why? Why would a good and loving God completely annihilate every human being in Jericho and Ai? This, this question makes a lot of Christians really uncomfortable. The answers given by many Christians range everywhere from very passive to very aggressive. We either don't engage at all, try to win the fight by proving that we're right, right? We, we oftentimes fight the wrong fight and we lose the war. Fail to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. Fail to understand oftentimes that the people who ask this kind of a question, they're, they're living, breathing human beings. People that ask this question, they're not just rebellious millennials. They're not just brainwashed postmoderns. And these are terms I've heard Christians use, which causes me to wonder, do you understand that you're talking about someone who's been created in the image of God. When you would refer to somebody categorically and generationally like that. Not just brainwashed postmoderns, not just hard-headed boomers, not just do-it-yourself modernists. So let's level the playing field and say this is not just a generational thing. It's a question that people of all shapes, sizes, colors, nationalities... Ask. It's a universal question. Why would a good and loving God sanction the mass murder of every living human being from baby in the crib to elderly on crutches? Why would a good and loving God sanction that and still be good and loving? Some people, um, and I think this is a good answer, Right answer. Many of us have chopped this answer up. 
Some have pointed to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. That's a parallel illustration, they would say, and I would say too, of God's righteous judgment against sin that leads to the consequences of physical death. And this, again, not a bad answer, but I will say, I will say when, when we start thinking about it, we start drawing those parallels, I start to wonder, like, why don't we see a difference in the generosity of so-called Christians then? If we believe that Ananias and Sapphira is true, and that the wages of that sin was death, the payment for their lying and their stealing from God, withholding what they should have given to God, was death, why aren't we more generous? Take a step further. Christians are known, and, and, and in some ways, rightly so, known today, at least some would say probably the far right of Christianity, although I disagree, whatever. Some would say that Christians are really known, especially in social media, for all of our ranting and raving about whatever our pet sin is, okay? Homosexuality, abortion, two of the top ones right now. Agree? Um, Social media is a place where we can hide out and we can just go zing. You don't have to worry about a person sitting across from you. Um, the list can go on and on. I mean, years ago, for good Baptists, it used to be dancing, right? Smoking and drinking. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls that do. Interesting thing was that problem solved. <laughs> We're holy now. <laughs> so, that was timely. <laughs> so, back to the point. Here's the interesting thing. We get our pet sins that we want to we talk about, right? We want to argue about. We want to post about. Um, we turn our noses up at, right? We do that. Um, all while um, ignoring or excusing our greed and our lack of giving according to this story. And the two stories tie together very well. So I'd be remiss if I were to miss that opportunity, wouldn't I? And usually we do it by talking about how, you know, the New Testament teaching on giving, that's different. The Old Testament one, that doesn't apply to us anymore. Yada, yada. We get a little bit of a distortion of grace. Like, you know, grace doesn't really require all that anymore. I can, I can get away with that. I can cheat God a little bit, and he's going to forgive me. Right? It's applying the promise without the obedience. That's called license. So the same kind of license that allows someone to get trashed at night is the same kind of license that allows you not to give what you're supposed to give to the Lord. Agreed? And yet we stand in judgment, don't we? Don't we do that? Because one is more seen than the other. We do all that while conveniently forgetting that Ananias and Sapphira are actually in the New Testament <laughs> church. And they were guilty of lying and stealing. So, they were guilty of that. Let me ask this question. Come full circle back around. What were these babies guilty of in Jericho and Ai? Somebody tell me, what were they guilty of? So, there's a couple different stances you can take. I'm going to take a little bit longer this morning with you guys. I'm sorry, but a couple different stances. So, if a baby isn't actually accountable for their sin until they're, what, 12 years old? It's the age of accountability would be one theological stance. That means before that, they're totally innocent and they go to heaven, Right? Uh, the other stance would be that um, at the moment of conception, every person is infected with the same sin that happened in the garden. And if that's true, then 
then where that person goes at death is relying upon a sovereign God who chooses. Since it was never based upon our merit anyways, right? So you take one of those two stances, that affects the way you interpret stories like this, doesn't it? It also affects the way that we value life. God values life. But what were these babies guilty of that died there? It's an important question. And you can't just say, I don't know. What warranted their death by Joshua's sword? Were they just collateral damage? Were they innocents caught in the crossfire? These are answers that Christians give. So I'm, I'm kind of doing a little cat and mouse back and forth. I hope you can tell that, right? I'm trying to stretch us some. Were they just innocents caught in the crossfire? Now, I admit it, at some levels, I don't have all the answers, okay? But I do know that when I read these two stories, it's hard for me to comprehend the communal nature of sin. I talked about this earlier. This points back to chapter 7 once again and what happened with Achan. And I think that theologically, if you step back and you look at the Bible as a whole, I think you can probably take some of this as an, as an answer. The communal nature of sin. We oftentimes think of sin as an individual thing with individual consequences, especially in America, right? We are very individualized here. Um, I do think the reality, though, is that sin is not just an individual thing. It's like cancer. The community is like a body. So, so cancer doesn't just affect the arm. Sin doesn't. It doesn't just affect the foot or the lung. It eventually affects the entire body, causes the death of the entire body. So, question, is it possible that the entire communities of both Jericho and Ai were completely infected with evil to the point that complete destruction was actually a justifiable mercy and preventative of the spread of more evil? Is it possible? My understanding, um, according to historical accounts of these two cities, is that the populations in those cities were so far gone that they were practicing child sacrifice. So anybody here that's ever had young babies or has a young baby, I pray that we cannot even imagine the horror of what that community is like. That this was a pastime. That this was television for them. That this was entertainment for them. That this was worship for them. Worshiping their false gods that they would sacrifice their babies. Not unlike the culture we live in today. Agreed? We would sacrifice our babies for our mere entertainment. So I think if the society was that gone that far, <coughs> could it be true that just like Noah's flood, this wasn't an ethnic cleansing at all, it was a social cleansing? In other words, the society was so far gone that it was better to wipe it out and start over again. Is that possible? I think it's possible. Highly possible that this is what's going on. You don't see this happening all throughout the Scriptures. I'm not kidding you. This is the only two times that I know of in the Scriptures where this happened. Like this. The rest of the time that this kind of devoted to destruction kind of language is used, it's not absolute annihilation. It's, it's basically subduing other nations. 
So these two are some of the toughest two stories, Jericho and Ai. And I think that could be an answer. Here's the reality. My study of Joshua, I found that one of the theological themes uh, throughout the book is that Joshua and the Israelites and even the Canaanites, they all have a choice to make. You remember the Canaanites were hiding in, in Jericho, right? What happened when, when all of Israel came across the sea? What happened? Their hearts melted like butter. Wasn't that a confrontation of the power of the God that Israel was serving? Wasn't that a moment where Canaanites could have said, I need to bow down before this God and serve him. Rahab did. It's the reason that her house stayed standing when all of the walls of Jericho came down and they were destroyed. So there was an opportunity. That's really what Joshua seems to be about. Joshua, the Israelites, the Canaanites, they all have a choice to make in regards to God's promises. You and I have a choice to make in regards to God's promises, God's commands, and God's presence. Listen, you don't live your life today like you want God's presence in it. What makes you think you're going to go to an eternity where God's presence is in it? Right? That's a tough question to wrestle with, but it's good for us to wrestle with. It's the picture that we see here is absolutely futile to resist. <clears throat> futile to resist and to rebel against the promises and the commands and the presence of God. One author observes all of this this way. He says that the, the physical extermination of the Canaanites, in Joshua 6 and 8, it may serve best to point us to the truth that the horrors of hell will be no less than those of Jericho. God is going to deal with and has dealt with all of our enemies, Satan, sin, the world, death. He's dealt with and will at some point finally deal with at the second coming when he comes back. He's on a horse. His clothes are drenched in blood. Got a tattoo on his leg. You want to argue with me about that? It's fine. We can do that. Got a tattoo on his leg. It says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I love it. Got lightning bolts come out of his eyes and a sword come out of his mouth. He's coming back to make war on his enemies. That's called justice, and I can't wait for justice to be completely served. But at the same time, I'm humble and humiliated by the fact that the justice that I deserve has been taken by Christ on the cross. There's no Calvinist, no Christian, no Arminian alive that should walk in pride because they are saved. The cross of Christ should humble us that far. <clears throat> I can visualize Joshua here in this passage standing at the edge of the city of Ai looking at the, the rubble, the smoke, the pile of rocks that covers the dead body of his enemy king. Feel the tension. Feel the satisfaction in victory. Feel the, the sobering reality of God's justified wrath against sin and sinner and enemy. Feel the rush. Feel the rush for Joshua, this comeback win over his uh, enemy king that once proved too powerful for him. Chapter 7. Feel the sobering chill of the serious threat of Satan's sin, worldly temptation that causes the destruction of both Jericho and Ai. I know the mission has been accomplished at Ai. I can hear the echo of the words, it is finished. My, my mission is complete here. God's wrath against Satan and sin and the world it's strategic, it's active, it's violent. There's no better place to see this than in the cross of Christ. Just as the evil king of Ai was hung on a tree to pay the justified price for his 
war crimes against God as a symbol of God's victory at Ai, so too Jesus was hung on a tree. He was perfect. He was innocent. He's the only innocent person who's ever lived. That doctrine's true. Only innocent person who's ever lived. He's the only one that could pay the right justified price for our sin. And he did as he was hung on a tree as God's sacrifice, symbolizing God's complete victory over Satan, sin, and the grave, the only real enemies that you and I have. So uh, in conclusion, God initiates the victory. What is he initiating in you right now that you need to respond to? We've got to prepare for the battle. What does that look like for you to be prepared for the battle? You need to engage the fight. What does it look like for you to be engaged, not just sitting back, tapped out, or on the opposite end, fighting the wrong stinking fight? It doesn't matter. The mission has been accomplished. The major theme of Joshua chapter 7 and 8 is really faith-filled obedience to the promises and the commands of God. And woven in to that theme of trust and obedience is this theme of devotion. The word for devotion is used numerous times, nearly a hundred, if I remember correctly, in the original Hebrew here. Some things are devoted to the Lord for absolute destruction. That's your sin. It's supposed to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. You're not supposed to be hanging on to that sin. Other things are supposed to be devoted to the Lord for honorable use. Our time, our talent, our treasure. The problem in the story and the problem for us is that we oftentimes keep hold of things that God has devoted to destruction. Or we cling tightly to the things that God has devoted to the expansion of his kingdom. When we do this, when we cling too tightly to the things that we ought not to have hold of, we walk in what? Defeat rather than victory. We, in a sense, live in chapter 7 rather than walking in chapter 8. When we devote our thoughts, when we devote our bodies, when we devote our possessions, our time, our talents, our treasure to anything other than the Lord, then we walk in defeat. (coughs) Bad news, as I said earlier, is that victory is oftentimes snatched up in the jaws of defeat. What a great picture. What a great picture from last week. The victory is often snatched up in the jaws of defeat. Why? Because of our disobedience and our mistrust. But the good news is this. The good news is that in Christ Jesus, the jaws of defeat have been crushed and we've been given the victory. The cross of Christ appeared to be a defeat Just like Israel fleeing from Ai, our hero, Jesus, he died. That moment would have been, I can't imagine. It would have felt like it was over. The reality is that Christ's death is what wins us the victory, and then then his resurrection is what enables us to walk in that victory. (coughs) It's the greatest comeback story ever told. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know what you walked in with this morning. don't know what kind of defeat you carry around in your backpack. don't know if it's relational brokenness, unmet desires, personal failures, inner fears, physical limitations. I just want to name these. Let me start over again. 
Because if this is on you, if this is what came in with you, there's power in the spoken word of God, right? And there's power in naming our enemies. Relational brokenness, unmet desires, personal failures, interferes, physical limitations, doubt, shame, worry, lust, anger, unforgiveness, woundedness, pride, insecurity, loneliness. Those are just some of the names, just a few of those enemies that stuff themselves into our backpacks that we carry over our shoulders. They cause a sense of defeat that can be utterly crippling. And I don't know which one of those you've walked in this morning feeling defeated by, but I do know this. There is victory in the name of Jesus. We don't have to walk around defeated. The cross of Christ is where all of our enemies go to die. The cross of Christ is where my old self goes to die. It's where my new self is enabled to live. It's where victory triumphs over defeat once and for all. You see, without the cross of Christ, my future looks no different than the king of AI and the people of AI paying the justified price for my scene of my war against God. The moral of the biblical story all the way through is always that without Christ, I am identified with the villain of the story. I am the king of AI. I am Achan. I'm the bad guy. So are you. And the penalty for our sin is death. But in the cross of Christ, my future and your future, if you've trusted in Christ, it looks like Joshua and it looks like Israel, standing victorious over our enemies, humbled by the truth that we didn't win the fight. God has won the victory for us at the cross. That truth is what enables me and you to not only experience that victory, but to also walk in that victory. Why? Because the cross of Christ is the greatest comeback story ever told. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you come here in these final moments and meet us where we are at and take us where you want to take us. Trust that you will do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.